Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Would there have been any evidence that you presented that would reverse a conviction for Tommy? Well, I think cumulatively, all of the evidence that we presented should have. Should, okay. yes, but do you think it could? Well, I think if we were to retry this case, starting from the get-go, with the evidence that we have, I'm absolutely convinced we'd get a not guilty verdict. I'm Darren Karp, and this is Killer Questions. On Christmas Eve 1975, Winter Garden, Florida, police respond to a call at the W.T. Ziegler Furniture Store. Inside, investigators find a bloody massacre. The bodies of Eunice Ziegler, her parents, and a man later identified as a customer are strewn throughout the store. All dead from what appears to be gunshot wounds. Eunice's husband, Tommy Ziegler, the owner of the store, has also been shot, but he will be rushed to the hospital and survive. Now, in the eyes of investigators, this fact makes him a suspect and ultimately will lead to Tommy Ziegler being tried, convicted, and sent to Florida's death row. On this episode of Killer Questions, I'm going to be talking to one of Tommy's attorneys. We're going to get into all the facts, including the reasons why a lot of people feel Tommy has gotten a seriously bad deal here. Plus, I've got a slew of killer questions I can't wait to ask. But first, let's get you some more background information. William Thomas Ziegler, Tommy for short, is born on January 21st, 1946, to Tom and Beulah Ziegler. Seven years earlier, Tom and Beulah opened the W.T. Ziegler Furniture Store, in the first store in Winter Garden to allow African-Americans to buy furniture on credit. This is kind of an important part of the story, people. After high school, Tommy joins the Army Reserves before returning home to help his parents run the furniture store. Tommy also coaches youth football at a local elementary school where he meets a young kindergarten teacher named Eunice. The two start dating and are married when Tommy's actually 21. This was in 1967, folks. I feel like people get married a lot younger then, so this seems pretty normal, right? All right, so after the wedding, Tommy and Eunice move in next door to Tommy's parents. The young couple begin breeding Persian show cats, my fave, and start trying to have a baby. 
basically, this is where they are in life for the next eight years. This brings us to Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1975. Tommy and Eunice are invited to a Christmas party. The couple arrange to travel together to the party with two friends, Don and Rita Fike. And when Don and Rita arrive to meet up with Eunice and Tommy, the Zigglers aren't home. So the Fikes carry on to the party alone at 9.18 p.m. Tommy telephones the party and asks to speak to Don. Tommy tells his friend that there's been a robbery at his store and he needs immediate help. I just kind of have to wonder, why would you call your friend at a Christmas party for help? Like, why not call the police? I'm just kind of curious about that. But by 921, police arrive to discover the murder scene at Ziegler's Furniture Store. Tommy is the only one still alive. He's taken out of the store and is brought to a nearby hospital covered in dried blood. Tommy is admitted into surgery for a gunshot wound to his abdomen. Doctors determine a bullet passed within only a centimeter of his liver. They also find a blunt force wound on the back of his head as though he had been struck. While Tommy is at the hospital, detectives search the crime scene. Inside the store, investigators discover four bodies. Tommy's wife, Eunice, her parents, 72-year-old Perry Edward, 52-year-old Virginia Edward, and a man later identified as 35-year-old Charlie Mays. Mays is believed to be one of the shop's customers. Each victim is discovered in a separate location within the shop. All these details are very important. All four victims have been shot, and the two men appear to have been beaten. Charlie Mays' official cause of death is ruled to be blunt force trauma to the head by a linoleum crank, not a gunshot wound. There's a tremendous amount of evidence throughout the store. There's blood everywhere, bloody shoe prints all over the floor, several discarded guns, and a gun holster dropped on a pool of dried blood. The guns have all been wiped clean of prints. A bullet is found lodged in a clock, which is stopped at 724. Tommy's glasses are found broken on the ground. Oddly, the store's electric breaker was shut off. It's a little sussy to me. Maybe someone shut it off in anticipation of this break-in, but circuits do break. Electric breakers do go off. So maybe this is just a coincidence. Detective Donald Fry is one of the lead detectives assigned to this case. As Fry combs through the evidence, he develops a theory as to what he felt likely occurred in the furniture store. According to this theory, the shooting is not just a simple robbery gone wrong, but involved a number of intentional and calculated attacks. This is predominantly due to the blood spatter patterns, which suggest different lettings of blood for each body. With Charlie's death occurring at least 15 minutes after the first major violent incident took place in the store. This timeline's pretty curious for me. We know this based on the different kind of states of the blood. Charlie's is less coagulated than the first person who was wounded enough to bleed out a lot. So timelines and, and dryness of the blood really is dependent here. Among the mess, investigators find a single trail of dried blood leading from the telephone to the spot Tommy is sitting when help arrives. Remember, he called his friend. This singular piece of evidence is enough to shift police's view of Tommy from victim to prime suspect. Well, joining me on today's episode is Ralph Terry Hadley III. We're going to call him Terry because that's what he prefers. Tommy's actual attorney throughout Tommy's 
going on 50-year ordeal, if you can believe it. Terry continues to work tirelessly to spread the word about this case to hopefully shed some light on what he believes is a major miscarriage of justice here. He has spent hundreds of hours learning all the ins and outs of the story, and we're just lucky to have him. Terry, welcome to the show. I got to know, how did you first hear about this case? How did you become Tommy's attorney? Well, I practiced law in Winter Garden, where Tommy's uh, practice was his furniture store and everything. And on Christmas Day, uh, when the events happened, I received a call from Tommy's personal attorney, who was an acquaintance of mine, and uh, indicating that the tragedy that had occurred at the Ziegler Furniture Store and that some of the law enforcement people were making unpleasant sounds that Tommy might be a suspect and they asked me to intervene at that point. And I actually drove out to the hospital and met with Tommy uh, the afternoon of Christmas Day. I got to ask, as an attorney, is there anything that draws you to a case that's something that you want to take on? Was there something about this case that you're like, I got to represent this guy? Or you were just doing your attorney duty here? Well, I had known Tommy uh, from a prior case that I had handled. Uh, in which there was some uh, law enforcement misconduct. Mm. And Tommy had actually been a great help for me in that case, going out and finding witnesses and doing things above and beyond the call to help this African-American gentleman. And uh, as a result, I knew Tommy and uh, liked him and uh, knew his reputation in the business community as being a decent, good businessman. And so when asked to help, I had no problem doing that. It's obviously been a number of years uh, since this case kind of went down. What still draws you to this case? Are there still unanswered questions that just kind of keep haunting you about this? Well, the case has evolved over the years. We keep turning up new evidence. Uh, Some of it was prosecutorial misconduct, things that were hidden from us. Uh, We had some law enforcement issues, uh, some made up testimony that we revealed incrementally over the years. And First of all, I stood beside Tommy Ziegler when the court sentenced him to death, believing that I had just lost the case and an innocent man was being put on death row. And that is compelling to have that over your head that, you know, the man that you represent that you believe in is now going to be put to death by the state for something he did not do. Okay, so here's some interesting facts about the case brought against Tommy. Within several hours of the killings, two men arrived separately at the local police station, each wanting to provide information on the crime. Edward Williams arrives first. Edward's a 58-year-old man from the Bahamas who claims he's known the Ziegler family for 20 years. Edward tells detectives Tommy asked for his help delivering Christmas presents the evening of the murders. Edward said the plan is to meet up at Tommy's home, also at 7.30. Now, several hours later, a second man named Felton Thomas arrives. Felton is a 26-year-old fruit picker who claims he only knows Tommy because he arranged to meet him to pick up a television. According to Felton's statement, Tommy arranges for Charlie Mays to pick up a used television at around 7.30 on the evening of the 24th. Detective Fry believes that sometime between 7 and 7.30, Tommy opens fire on his wife Eunice, then her parents, shooting the bullet into the clock at 7.24. Felton Thomas and Charlie Mays arrive at the store at 7.30 to pick up the TV. At which point, Tommy approaches them and suggests they go for a drive. What? And they just, like, agreed to go for a drive? Like, sussy, I thought they didn't even know him. Okay. 
Tommy drives the two men to a nearby orange grove. He then presents Felton and Charlie with three guns and asks them to try them out by shooting them into the ground. Detective Fry believed this was an attempt to get different sets of prints on the guns, but I thought the guns were wiped clean, so this theory isn't panning out for me. Anyway, back to Felton's story. After shooting the guns, Tommy drives the two men back to the furniture store to pick up the TV. When they get there, Tommy realizes he's missing his keys and attempts to break in. To his own store, really? Felton says his buddy Charlie begins to get nervous and suggests that Tommy return home to get his keys. Tommy agrees, and Charlie and Felton accompany him. Now, Edward Williams claims that as all of this is going on, he's sitting inside his truck, outside Tommy's house. He waits for 20 minutes, so 7.50-ish, when he watches Tommy arrive in his car, accompanied by Charlie and Felton. Edward states that he watches the men enter Tommy's garage and come back with a box of gun ammunition, after which Tommy approaches Edward's car and asks him to wait just a few more minutes. Hmm... Felton's story continues here. He, Charlie, and Tommy all return to the furniture store. Once there, Tommy tries to bring the two men inside, but Felton is wary of the situation and adamantly refuses. It's a little also weird that he's kind of agreed to everything sussy up until this point, but is now refusing to go inside the store, which is literally the one thing he's kind of there to do. Charlie accompanies Tommy inside the store to retrieve the television, but neither return. Detective Fry believes that once inside the store, Tommy shoots Charlie, then returns home to wipe down his car and meet up with Edward Williams, who is still waiting to deliver Christmas presents. The timeline here almost seems too perfect. According to Edward, Tommy doubles back to meet up with him, and the two return once again to the furniture store. Tommy enters the store first, followed by Edward. And once inside, Edward claims he sees Tommy holding a gun. Tommy points the gun at him and attempts to fire at him three times before realizing it was out of bullets. Tommy then hands the gun to Edward, trying to calm his fear. During his interview with Detective Fry, Edward turns his gun over to the police. I mean, okay, of course he's fucking scared. You pointed a gun at him and fired. This was like Russian roulette. I guess, according to the story, he's acting like he knows the gun wasn't loaded and maybe he's joking there. Okay, sick joke. Edward finishes his story by saying he flees the store and runs into a restaurant across the street. He believes the timeline now is around 8.50 p.m. Edward tries to call the police, but isn't able to do so on the restaurant's phone. Terrified, he leaves town. Roughly half an hour later, Tommy calls his friend Don at the Christmas party to beg for help. It is later determined that the gun Edward turned over to the police is the murder weapon used to kill Eunice's parents. Detective Fry believes that Tommy orchestrated this elaborate plan in an attempt to receive Eunice's life insurance payout, something very familiar in the true crime world. She holds a $500,000 policy, and that's the only way Tommy believes he can get away clean. It's to murder her parents, too. He also believes that Tommy murders Charlie and tries to kill Felton and Edward in order to implicate them as burglars, making it appear as though they had broken into the store and killed Eunice Perry in Virginia during the robbery. Now, there are a lot of holes in this theory of his. For one, Tommy's furniture business is successful, and the family is not in financial straits. In fact, Tommy is later able to come up with a half a million dollars to fund his own defense. Half a million dollars now is serious cash. Imagine this. 
in that timeline, in the 70s, that's serious cash. I don't think he would need to kill his wife to get an insurance payout. I mean, not to mention this plan requires orchestration down to the very minute. If Charlie and Felton had arrived even six minutes sooner than planned, they would have walked in on Tommy shooting his family. It's just too perfect. I want to take it back to the beginning of this story here, if you don't mind. I've got some questions even into the lead up of this. First of all, it struck me as weird or odd that Tommy calls his friend Don for help, even in the heat of the moment. There must be a more reasonable choice for someone to kind of call for help. 911, I'm thinking, a hospital. Do we know why Tommy chose Don to call in that moment? Tommy chose Don Fickey, the, the police chief for the city of Winter Garden, because he was supposed to be going with Don and his wife to a party at the city judge's house. So he knew where he was. And they were friends. Uh, Don uh, had been a friend of Tommy's and I was acquainted with and knew Don very well myself. And so I think he reached out to him. And remember, there was no 911 back then. Uh, that did not exist. Right. So Tommy was reaching out to get someone and who better to call than the chief of police to deal with this kind of situation. Yeah, that's a fair point. The crime scene appears also a little out of whack of sorts in this case. The fact that all the bodies seem to have been moved to different locations and that all the victims were shot so far apart in time from each other. Do you have any insight as to why the crime scene seems so kind of shockingly bizarre? Well, <laughs> that was something we worked on, you know, during the entire case, preparing for the trial, during the trial and afterwards. Uh, there are many factors there uh, and none of us could come up with a satisfactory uh, explanation as to what exactly had happened, how it transpired. Uh, as you indicate, there were no two bodies in the same location. They were all spread out throughout the store. Tommy's wife was in a little break room right off the office. Uh, his mother-in-law was way out in the store next to some furniture. His father-in-law was toward the back of the store. And then Charlie Mays, uh, the African-American gentleman, whom we believe was a participant, not a victim, uh, was uh, in the very back of the store. So they were all spread out. There were all kinds of things there. And uh, uh, it, it was a bizarre crime scene. And I will tell you, uh, I was a legal and discipline officer for 5,000 men in Vietnam in the U.S. Navy. And in all my career as a prosecutor, when I got out of the Navy and everything else, I had never seen anything this bizarre and strange. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to move on a little bit to Edward and Felton and Charlie here. First of all, these two men, Edward and Felton, turned up individually to the police station. Does that seem a little suspect to you i mean they don't seem to know each other but they show both showed up unprompted within just a few hours of each other does that strike you as odd we thought it was very unusual and strange and uh, for instance on edward williams uh he had supposedly uh walked and done all these things and uh in his clothes he climbed a fence uh walked a whole great distance and all this kind of stuff and when we finally got a chance to examine his clothes and do tests on it, uh, things just didn't match up. The pants were, you know, unsoiled. They were not wrinkled out there. And there were no scuff marks on the bottom of his shoes indicating that they'd ever been walked on, you know, and uh, things of that right. nature. And uh, we were looking for gunshot residue, but of course our tests were not allowed. We didn't get them done before the trial. And uh, the court denied our request for continuance so we could complete the test on uh, uh, Edward Williams' clothes and, you know, all of the things that compounded and made our life very difficult as a, doing the defense in this case. What do you equate them's kind of blocking you testing the clothes to? What do you, what do you, what's your conclusion well, of that? They were slow getting the evidence to us and released, you know, for our own testing. Uh, when we asked the court for more time, we were denied. Going back to Felton, and and Charlie, why do Felton and Charlie just agree to go for a drive with this man they claim to not know? I, I didn't believe that ever happened, quite honestly. Uh, Charlie May's truck was parked in a parking lot adjacent to the store, behind the store, uh, which was part of a parking lot for the Winter Garden Inn, a local motel. Uh, to get to the mm-hmm. store from where Charlie Mays parked his car, supposedly, to pick up a TV, he had to jump a six-foot fence. There was no way, there was no gate in the fence to get there and uh, no way to do it and come to the back store, the back of the store, which was locked. I mean, this was the man who was going to pick up his TV uh, for Christmas, and he had been a customer in the past. He knew where to park. He parked in front of the store and walked in the front door. Instead, uh, according to Felton Thomas, They'd driven right up beside the store, which was amazing because they had to drive through a four-foot concrete block wall and then park against a chain-link fence that was six feet tall to go pick up a TV from the front of the store 
did not make sense. You know, we could not understand how Felton Thomas had any credibility because of what his testimony said and what we presented in the weight of, of uh, evidence. We had the pictures showing the, where the truck was, where the chain link fence was, where the wall was, and this kind of thing. And uh, uh, Felton couldn't explain that. None of it made sense. Why does Detective Fry believe Tommy was trying to get different sets of prints on the guns by handing them to Felton and Charlie when we know the guns were totally wiped clean? Beats me. Uh, (laughs) Detective Fry made up his mind very early on that Tommy Ziegler was guilty. Uh, Now, he was a young detective at that point in time. And he came to see me at the hospital when I was visiting Tommy two days in and said, you know, if you will give me an hour alone with your client, I'll have a confession and we can close this client, this case out. And then I said, "What?" I said, Don, you know, you, do you think I'm crazy? I mean, you know, what kind of silly? Yeah. Or stupid. And yeah. So I said, you're not talking to my client, especially not when you, you're there and you made up your mind he's guilty and all you're going to try to do is extract a confession. Because my experience with if you have law enforcement agents that have made up their mind that you're a guilty party, then small things that you say can be used against you. So you just you just don't do it. And uh, but he went out to prove Tommy's guilt, not solve the crime. This is the opposite of what happens in science with the scientific method. You know, you have to kind of work. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have your hypothesis and then you kind of work up to see if it's true. This seems like they have their conclusion and they're going to backtrack to fill in the details of why their conclusion is true. Is what you're talking yeah, about. that's exactly what Detective Fry did. He made up his conclusion, you know, a few hours into this case and then went out to prove his conclusion was valid rather than investigate the case and rely on scientific proof and evidence. Do you chalk that up to him just trying to fill the quota of solving murders on his side and looking like a big dog? Or do you think there's more to that story? I think Don Fry was a young detective trying to earn his spurs and show everybody that yeah. he was a hot shot. Now, according to Felton, what happened after Charlie goes into the store with Tommy? Where does he go? Did he just leave his friend in the store? Yeah. Does he hear gunshots? According to, according to him, he left walking now. I realized he said he was going to walk away. He just walked away. And, uh, you know, what? just, you know, didn't go get a ride. Don't get in, get in Charlie's pickup truck or did anything. Yeah, he walked away and headed on out. He wasn't going to have any part of it. He was nervous or something. So he walked away. And uh, that was it. And then. A little while later, walked into the Winter Garden Police Station. He does a lot of walking for a lot of crime that's being happening yeah. around him. Yeah. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of slow yeah. pace here. But at any point, do the police question whether Edward and Felton might have committed the murders and are now trying to pin it on Tommy? I mean, their stories to, seem to be awfully convoluted on their face, and Edward does have the literal smoking gun murder weapon. I saw no indication ever that they tried to look at Felton Thomas or Edward Williams as potential suspects or as participants in the crime or anything of this nature. God, that's so, this is so aggravating. Were there any other suspects potentially mentioned outside Tommy during this whole case? Not by the state. And do they, did they answer or did you present, because this is my big question, why, pardon my French here, why the fuck would Tommy have needed to kill his in-laws in order to receive Eunice's life insurance? Payout? He would not. In fact, all that would do was unduly complicate the situation. If he was going to knock off his wife for insurance, right. it could have been done a hundred ways, a hundred times, any place. 
uh, without the kind of gross complications and idiocy that uh, were demonstrated in that story that night. It, would, it makes no sense that he would end up killing a sore customer, his wife, and his in-laws to get a life insurance policy. It made no sense. When Tommy becomes aware that he is the prime suspect in his family's murder, he hires a defense attorney. This is the smartest move you can do, people. I want a lawyer are the four best words just strewn together in the true crime world. A few days after the shootings, Tommy has recovered enough to speak to his lawyer and provide his own account of that evening. According to Tommy, he and Eunice plan to give Perry and Virginia a recliner for Christmas. Eunice brings her parents to the furniture store on Christmas Eve so they could pick out the one they wanted. In the meantime, Tommy waits at home for Edward Williams to come by and help him deliver the Christmas presents. Tommy states the two plan to meet at his home around seven. Edward arrives late, and when he finally gets there, the two ride to the furniture store together. Tommy enters the store first to turn on the lights, but is unable to. Remember, that breaker was turned off. And while in the dark, Tommy claims he's attacked by at least two men. In the struggle, Tommy loses his glasses and is unable to see. He has terrible eyesight and is legally blind without them. So not only is it dark out, but he cannot see. Tommy states that he carries a 22 for self-defense. He draws it and may have fired once, but the gun jams and becomes useless. Tommy throws the pistol at the men and runs to grab the 357 pistol that he keeps in a drawer. He believes he may have fired with that gun too, but is unsure as to how many. The attackers shoot Tommy, he falls down and is knocked unconscious. When Tommy finally comes to, the men are gone. Tommy has been shot and is obviously in shock. He crawls around looking for a phone and when he finally finds it, he calls his friend Don at the Christmas party. Tommy also reveals to his defense team his suspicion that his attack may have been more than just a simple robbery gone wrong. At the time of the attack, Tommy is actively trying to shed light on corruption going on in his community. Six months earlier, Tommy helps a man named Andrew James, a local African-American bar owner, keep possession of a liquor license that the local government was trying to force him to sell. Andrew allegedly offers to sell drugs to an undercover agent of the Beverage Commission, who is now attempting to revoke the bar's license in the hopes he will sell off instead of allowing it to be revoked. Politics, people. And well, it's 1970s racism, so let's call it what it was, right? Anyway, Tommy testifies as a character witness on Andrew's behalf. His testimony substantially challenges the UC agent story. The agent has a character witness of his own, Judge Maurice M. Paul. Now remember this name, Judge Paul. You mentioned Andrew James, a local African-American bar owner uh, who, right. you know, who wanted the, the liquor license and that Tommy had sort of testified for him and helped bring sort of justice to this case. Was this mentioned in trial? Could it have been mentioned in trial? I mean, can you give our listeners maybe some sort of more detail outside of what you've mentioned about how this factored into the case? Was this brought up at all? Well, we were limited to what we could bring up because we had to have direct proof of evidence. So we could have our suspicion and our belief that this was part of the Lone Shark organization coming after Tommy. And, uh, but Andrew and his family were supportive of Tommy during the trial, uh, and uh, others were as well, and uh, you know, were, gave us help and support. But 
we could not put out as a theory to the jury, hey, we think this is a loan shark retaliatory case, unless we had some sort of direct evidence, and, and we didn't. Before trial, Tommy's defense team recommends he visit a psychiatric clinic near Tampa. At the clinic, a psychiatrist puts Tommy under the influence of sodium brevitol. Now, this is an anesthetic drug that's sometimes used to place subjects in a hypnotically sedated state during questioning. Sometimes people who witness traumatic events lose their memory of the event. And sometimes the use of sedative drugs during an interview can help people recover these memories because the chemicals prevent them from choosing their responses to questions and allow them to sort of answer spontaneously. So it's not really a truth serum. It's more, it kind of just stops you from crafting answers and just giving gut responses. Studies have shown that sodium brevitol is more effective than the use of hypnosis or lie detectors during questioning. Trial courts have accepted brevitol-assisted interviews as admissible evidence when the drug has been administered by a doctor or a psychologist, and the subject was allowed to have an attorney present during questioning. Tommy's interview under the influence of Brevitol backs up his original story of the events of Christmas Eve. While under the influence of the drug, he's also able to recall some additional information. He remembers hearing a white man's voice saying, Mays, that's Charlie, has been hit. We've got to get rid of him. Remember, Charlie was the only one who died of blunt force trauma. The psychiatrist who conducts the session believes that Tommy is telling the truth. At trial, the defense now has to convince a jury that Tommy is the victim of the crime, either a robbery or back alley retribution for his character witness testimony about the liquor license. You mentioned you had quite a bit of trouble trying to uh, submit evidence into this that would also show Tommy's innocence. Now, it's terribly hindered by the staggering amount of missing evidence that is either incredibly confusing to the jury, was lost or was never processed at all. For example, a cartridge case is found in the store that does not match any of the guns on the scene. Would this mean, Terry, that an additional gun is used during the shooting? We thought so, but, you know, we weren't sure because it's hard to tie in just a gun case that's there and how it got there when and that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we discovered is, uh, like, for instance, uh, they said Tommy went out and had these guys fire guns into an orange grove. Right. Okay. And then they had prisoners come search the orange grove. Right. And, quote, found a bullet in the sand in the orange grove, which matched supposedly one of these guns. A couple of years after the trial, we got word from one of the prisoners oh that he wanted to talk. And he reached out and basically said the bullet was planted and they were told where to go find it. And here's the kind of thing we've been dealing with all along in this case. We get this and we bring it to the court's attention. Of course. And they say, well, that's not enough on its own to overturn a conviction. Okay, yeah, it's not good. But that in and of itself won't overturn a conviction. So we put that piece aside. Then we had some witnesses who drove by the front of the store who heard and saw some things. They were interviewed by the state and they were basically told, well, your evidence doesn't comply with our case. You're not going to hear from us. They contacted us years later and we got their testimony, presented it to the court. Well, yeah, that's interesting, but that in and of itself is not enough to overturn the case. There was a guest at the hotel that heard shots and saw things and called uh, the chief investigator for the state attorney's office and told them the story or, you know, let them know where. So they interviewed him over the phone. Right. They were out of state. 
And uh, he said, well, it's not quite the way we think a lot of things went down. If you'd had your story a little differently, we'd have given you a free ticket back to Florida, but thank you, we're not interested. So we got their information years later. Now, every time we presented to the court one of these things, because as you come up with them, you present them up. And each time the court would say, that's not enough on itself to overturn this case. You can't do it, not enough new evidence. But when we tried to present it in a cumulative fashion, I mean, look at this A, B, C, D, E pieces. They said, well, we've already reviewed all of those and ruled on that. So the rules don't allow you to bring it back up again. Right. Now, the, the, the main thing about it is the system is designed to execute innocent people because they do not care about the facts and the truth. They want the procedure to stand. Yep. And that's what I don't understand about the death penalty. It would seem to me the most important thing in the world is to make sure we do not execute innocent people. You'd think, Terry, you'd think that would be the number one fucking thing they'd care about, it, Terry. It, you would think so. But Florida's not the Lone Ranger there. There are other states where even the prosecutor said this guy's innocent, but you're too late to do it. And But their attitude is the procedure is you follow the procedure. If you use it all up, hey, time's up. Goodbye. See you on the other side of the heavenly gates. And you're going to be put to death irrespective of whether or not you're innocent. Just the devaluing of human life here is just absolutely appalling. In your opinion, would there have been any evidence that you prote- that you presented that would reverse a conviction for Tommy? Well, I think cumulatively, all of the evidence that we presented should have. Should, okay. yes. But do you think it could, given this? Well, I think if we were to retry this case, starting from the get-go, with the evidence that we now have, I'm absolutely convinced we get a not guilty verdict. And I'll tell you what, I've tried a lot of cases. I've practiced law for 54 years. And uh, I, when I used to do litigation, I've tried a huge number of cases, criminal and civil. And I've never had a case where every objection of mine was overruled. Not a single objection was sustained, not one, during the entire trial. Wow. And every piece of evidence that the state wanted to get in was allowed, including, uh, grossly inflammatory pictures that deaths were supposedly introduced for the purpose of shooting cause of death, we stood up and stipulated to the cause of death. Said, Your Honor, submit to the jury, this is what caused each one of these people to die, and there's no need for the pictures. And instead, the court allowed the pictures, every one of them in, which is designed to do nothing but inflame the jury. The icing, the icing on the cake of this trial is that the presiding judge is Maurice Paul, the same judge who previously gives testimony as a character witness for the undercover agent in the liquor license case. Do you smell gross misjustice here, people? Because I do. The jury is sent to deliberate and at first are split down the middle. Six votes guilty, six not guilty. As deliberation goes on, five of the jurors who want to acquit are swayed towards a guilty verdict. There is one holdout, a woman named Irma Rickle. Irma truly does not believe Tommy is guilty and claims to withstand a great deal of berating from her fellow jurors who attempt to change her vote. She even passes out in the jury room on two separate occasions from the immense pressure she's under. She contacts the judge several times, trying to let him know that she's being mistreated by her fellow jurors. However, he refuses to speak with her, stating that he fears speaking to her will trigger a mistrial. Eventually, Judge contacts Irma's doctor, who prescribes her Valium so that she's able to continue deliberations. 
Irma later states that both she and another juror took the Valium. Irma holds out as long as she can, but is eventually unable to withstand the pressure from the other jurors and changes her vote to guilty. On July 2nd, 1976, Tommy is found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. The jury recommends a sentence for life in prison for each murder charge. However, the judge overrules the jury's recommendation and sentences Tommy to death for each of the two first-degree murders and life in prison for each of the two second-degree murders. Why is the judge allowed to preside over this case when he clearly has a bias against Tommy? I don't know. We moved to recuse him not once but twice and we're denied twice. And when you when you present this, and I'm not a lawyer, you present this and you were denied, that's it. You just have to kind of suck it up and move on from this? Or? Well, we had another lawyer trying to take up an appeal, uh, do an instanter appeal, uh, but it was denied simply because the discretion is normally with a trial judge in that kind of instance in the absence of clear and convincing evidence uh, uh, that he's prejudiced uh, to not remove him. If he says he's not prejudiced, the, the courts up, up the line will defer to the trial judge in that kind of instance. Is the jury aware of that happening? No. Okay. They're not. Well, there is also a huge element of potential jury intimidation at play here. What constitutes juror intimidation versus just trying to reach consensus? Where is the line in that when juries are well, deliberating? Well, we, we, know, we know from interviews with jurors by other people. We, By the way, the judge refused to allow us to interview the jurors. So he entered a permanent injunction. We were not allowed to interview the jurors. That was to make sure we couldn't do anything because there was a suggestion. There was one juror who was a holdout. Right. And so then she finally got drugged up enough to go along with it. And it was a compromised verdict. And the deal that they made, we know this for a fact, uh, was even though we couldn't interview, they talked to other people, is that, okay, we'll all vote guilty and then we'll vote life sentence. Uh, so he will be executed, and uh, uh, then if he's innocent, it'll turn up later. And so they made a deal, and uh, they convicted him on after three days of deliberation. Uh, they came back with a recommendation after an hour of deliberation for life in prison, not death. And uh, then the judge said, well, you're welcome to stay around and, and watch everything. So they then left the jury box, and they're sitting as audience in the courtroom. And the judge sentenced Tommy to die. Uh, twice, two, two death sentences uh, on him. And uh, this juror that I'm talking about ran screaming from the courtroom. I mean, she went nuts in the courtroom and ran screaming out the door. There's such a huge amount of new evidence discovered both during the original trial and throughout the years afterwards. It's been quite a number of years, to your point. Shouldn't that be grounds for a new trial for Tommy? I think so. But uh, the courts don't agree because procedurally, we've presented all of that in the past. Like I said, the rules are you presented in the past. Uh, you can't bring it up again. It just seems to me that there's such a tremendous amount of evidence out there pointing towards Tommy's innocence in this case. What do you think it would take for him to be granted his freedom today? I think it would be that we're allowed to do the DNA testing, which we requested. And both the state's expert and our expert testified that the DNA evidence with the testing that's available under today's world and the science of DNA today, that we didn't have any DNA back then at all. And we've done one level of DNA, which was limited, you know, a number of years ago. But with what we're able to do now with touch DNA and all the things that are underneath people's fingernails and the things they could do, 
both experts, both the state's expert and ours, said it will conclusively prove Tommy Ziegler is either guilty or innocent. So I go to the state and I said, it's a win-win for the state. If the evidence clearly proves him guilty, you can rest, you can go to bed knowing you've done your job. Right. And if it proves him innocent, the state wins because you're now prevented from executing an innocent person. Why in the heck do you not want us to do this testing? How the hell do people sleep? I, I can barely sleep at night knowing there's innocent people in prison, let alone on death row. How do these people who are in charge of being responsible for this just sleep at night? You'll have to ask them. <laughs> I do not know. This just makes me think of the phrase, who watches the watchman? Like, who's watching the people that are supposed to be watching <laughs> yeah. out for us? That's all my, I, I that's literally my, all I can fucking say about this. My, my, my Italian friends say eyes watching the eyes. Yeah. It absolutely. <laughs> eyes watching the eyes is absolutely right. If you could have one question asked and answered in this case that's been haunting you this entire time, what would it be? Is my client innocent like I believe he is? I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah. I believe his innocence, but I would absolutely cherish the fact that we have positive proof one way or the other. And if that evidence came back and proved I'm wrong, that despite my belief and what all the evidence I think shows Tommy Ziegler is not innocent, that he's guilty, then we know I could go to bed. But every day I go to sleep and every time I think about this case, it's with, I defended this man. I believe him to be innocent. I've done everything in my power to establish that. And yet he's scheduled to be put to death by the state of Florida. That is just, I mean, I can't think of anything more tragic than that. Terry, everyone working on this case, thank you so much for your time and uh, justice for Tommy. Justice for Tommy. That's what I want to see is justice for Tommy Ziegler. I have a home up at Cross Creek out in the woods where we're about seven-tenths of a mile off of paved road and you've got a nice creek out there. And I want nothing more than him to walk the grass and smell the flowers and hear the frogs and the crickets and do it as a free man. That's my goal. Amen to that. Since the trial in 1976, new evidence has come to light that seems to favor Tommy's innocence. New witnesses have come forth stating that on the night of the murders, they heard sounds coming from the store that they described as many firecrackers going off at once. They also recall witnessing four cars outside the furniture store around the time of the shootings, not just two, as described by the prosecution. A 15-page police report that was not presented at trial has also surfaced. In the report, an on-site detective describes the blood on Tommy's shirt as dry when authorities arrived at the scene. Despite the fact that he had shot himself only minutes before their arrival, the blood obviously would still be wet. A taped interview also surfaced between an investigator and a witness who was staying at a hotel located behind the furniture store on Christmas Eve. The witness details to the detective that before shots were fired inside the store, he and his family watched a police car with a police officer with a drawn gun leaning over the hood of the car. The detective taking the statement told the witness that his statement would not be helpful, but that he could offer the family, quote, a free trip back to Florida if he was able to change his story and state that they heard the shots before seeing the police officer. Oh, boy. At present, Tommy's defense team is petitioning the court for permission to conduct further DNA testing on the physical evidence found at the crime scene. It is the defense hope that Tommy, now 77 years old, is exonerated before the end of his life so that he's able to spend the remainder of his days as a free man. And for you guys listening to the show, what are your killer questions for this case? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. And again, I'm Darren Carp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. 
For even more true crime from ID, head to Discovery Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com slash killer questions to start your seven day free trial today. That's discoveryplus.com slash killer questions. Terms apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.